Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. I'm your host, Lance Thurner. Today we'll be talking with Professor Courtney Fullove about her new book, The Prophet of the Earth, The Global Seeds of American Agriculture, out from University of Chicago Press last year, 2017. And The Prophet of Earth examines the social and political history of how agricultural knowledge was created in the 19th century. As the Midwest and other parts of the country transformed from uh, prairie land into the golden waves of grain that came to signify all the promises of settler colonialism. Prophet of the Earth explains the creation of this arrangement by excavating the ways that farmers, settlers, and bureaucrats learned about the earth and its possibilities as they sought a living, a profit, tax income, or national progress. In this way, Professor Philov demonstrates that the advent of American-style agriculture grew out of the co-optation and reworking of local forms of rural knowledge. Courtney Philov is Associate Professor of History at Wesleyan University. Courtney, welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, so I'd like to begin discussing a bit about how this book came into being and how you came to this project and uh, where it all began. That always... Um... <laughs> it always seems like a softball question. And then the more you think about it, the more there are probably a billion points of origin for any any story or any history. Maybe I'll just try to give you a couple in the, in the interest of time. Um, I guess one you mentioned just in the very first part of your remarks when you said in passing uh, that the book describes how the prairie was uh, um, transformed into amber waves of grain. And that's... Uh, a verse that's so familiar to everyone uh, from America, the beautiful, oh, beautiful for spacious skies, for amber waves of grain. Um, and, you know, I grew up with that song, like many Americans, and it always seemed to me that the way the West was described um, was though it was a natural landscape that Americans had inherited. And as I read more and more into agricultural history, I was so stunned by something I knew in a broad way, but not in a specific way, about the speed of the transformation of the prairie uh, into grain fields. And so I was struck by the fact that the amber waves of grain that are actually, it's a, a poem by Catherine Lee Bates. When she wrote the poem in 1893, uh, the amber waves of grain were about 20 years old. <laughs> and so I really wanted to understand how something that had been figured as so natural to American history was in fact such a novelty. So that's one point of origin. Um, maybe the well, maybe it's narcissistic, but for me, the autobiographical one is that um, I come from a very agricultural family in many respects. My grandfather was president of the Agricultural Experiment Station in Griffin, Georgia, and it's I grew up in Atlanta. But um, spending time in Griffin and in that environment and hearing stories of the experiment station, I was always so surprised by how international and cosmopolitan that environment seemed when what I knew from my peers and the media, and certainly once I went to college at Columbia, um, was that the South was uh, rural and backward. Um, and so 
I think I really struggled uh, as I was coming of age and as an adult to reconcile this idea of the rural backward South with the stories of uh, international research and cosmopolitanism that I had grown up with. So maybe I'll stop at two, even though people usually like things in groups of three. (laughs) Sure. So can you describe a little bit about the the structure of the book? So it's organized in three parts, part one, collection, part two is migration, and part three is preservation. Uh, how did you come up with these categories, and what, why are you organizing the book this way? Oh, that's an interesting question, which I probably should be able, be able to answer right off the bat because I remember just laboring over that structure. But uh, in reality, you know, when you write a book, you have so much text, and you're trying to figure out how to organize it into a narrative for a reader And as I thought back over the experience of researching the book, I thought that the most meaningful way I really made my way through the material was actually in the work that I had done uh, traveling, um, collecting plants with botanists and plant genetic resource specialists. And that field work is described in the book. Um, It's the collection was for international gene banks uh, aimed at biodiversity preservation and also various kinds of plant breeding projects. Um, And you know, as I say in the the preface to the book and throughout, I learned an enormous amount traveling with that group of scientists and seeing on the ground what biodiversity preservation and agricultural improvement look like in the 21st century. Um, and so as I tried to make my way through the historical material, it occurred to me that those practices of collection and migration and preservation are essential in the 21st century. And they also describe the history that I was trying to to convey. So that's how I came up with that structure. Yeah. And so we start with like such a, a, a unexpected place. You begin the book at the patent office uh, and the story of James Morrow. Why the patent office? Why is this story uh, relevant to the history of seeds? Yeah, that's a funny question. Uh, and it's one that um, I suppose has a boring answer and an interesting answer. The The boring answer is that Actually, my dissertation research was on the 19th century U.S. Patent Office, uh, and the dissertation was really much more broadly about the idea of uh, intellectual property law and property rights and and invention and how those developed in the 19th century. The thing that really caught my imagination when I started studying the the Patent Office was that it was absolutely chock full of seeds and plants. And, you know, as a graduate student, when I discovered that, it was something I really wanted to make sense of. I was aware that there were these um, very extreme political controversies over property rights and seeds in the 21st century, but I thought that they were basically new. And so when I discovered that the patent office in the 1850s was chock full of of seeds and cuttings for distribution to American farmers, I really wanted to understand that prehistory. And as it turns out, uh, the patent office, prior to the formation of the USDA in 1861, was the primary sponsor of federal research and development and agricultural improvement. You know, there were not patent rights attached to seeds. It was public research. Uh, But it intrigued me that um, an institution which is now considered a a shrine to private property rights and invention, in fact, with regard to agriculture, started out as a public research institute. did Did the politics of Western expansion reflect in this institution and in in how the oh, absolutely. Uh, preservation yeah. of seeds was and the distribution of seeds was thought of? Yeah, and this was also a really interesting story that, for me at least, emerged pretty organically from the archive. 
people really fought about uh, which seeds to collect from abroad and who should get them in the United States. And uh, it was a history that fell out predictably over uh, cash crops in the slave South uh, versus the free labor North. Um, And so uh, you see, for example, uh, in the early years of the civil war, cotton varieties being taken from the South and shipped out West to uh, farmers that were loyal to the union. So, you know, there's no way in which seeds were not political tools in the, the expansion of the West, and that expansion, um, as we know, took place as a dispute over the fate of slavery in the West in the Western territories. And, and of course, no seed was more important than the turkey wheat. Is that right? Well, <laughs> you know, I wouldn't. I actually wouldn't say that. And I think, in fact, um, some readers of the book have interpreted it that way because I dedicate so much attention to it as a case. You know, you could, um, and I think people are, writing important books, for example, about maize. Uh, Corn is a major crop in the United States. Um, I was more, wheat is a hugely important crop in the settlement of the West, but I was more using that as a case to try and describe the transformation of the prairie into a grain field. And, you know, as I say in the book, it is very important that the varieties of wheat that will grow on the eastern seaboard, these soft white varieties from northern Europe, will do absolutely nothing on the prairie. They don't survive the winters. They don't survive the rust and the pests. And uh, so these hard red winter varieties, the the turkey wheat you alluded from, uh, you alluded to rather, were instrumental in actually being able to cultivate the stiff soil on the prairie. So in that sense, yes, it's a hugely significant problem crop, but I wouldn't say it's the most significant. Yeah. And so how did the turkey wheat get to the Midwest? And why does that story matter? It's, it's an interesting question, and I, I give a pretty, I, what I hope is a pretty clear narrative in the book of how Mennonites, uh, German Mennonites who were settled in southern Russia, who were um, fleeing uh, various Russification policies and looking for a new home, eventually settled in the prairie uh, in the 1870s and brought with them seed grain that was very important in uh, making that a major crop in the West. So that's the simple story, and it's a, it's a story I tell, and then it's a story I try to question, because there's a way in which we don't know. Um, we get that history from uh, Mennonite sources, uh, which are extremely thorough and uh, extremely important, but they're also heritage histories. And so they have a vested interest in building up the memory and contribution and legacy of a community. And you know, the more you sort of peel back the layers of this story, the more complicated it gets. There, there's significant evidence that Mennonites probably brought seed grain with them in the 1870s. But if you really look back into the 1850s, you can already see varieties that look quite similar being cultivated in other places. And so there's a way in which it was the dedication of these Mennonite cultivators who settled in mass um, on the plains that made uh, turkey uh, red wheat a major crop. Something that concerns me a lot in the book is the extent to which Turkey wheat didn't sort of uh, spring from nowhere in southern Russia. I try to look back and figure out where those crop varieties originated and how, in fact, the what the, the term turkey wheat means. And this is a really um, complex and thorny history, which other historians are also trying to unravel. But the truth is, when we look back at the deep history of any crop variety, it gets very hard to assign rights of ownership and origination uh, to people. You know, when you think about wheat as a crop, 
Uh, it has basically a 10,000, 10,000 to 8,000 year history. Uh, that's a lot of individual introducers and improvers. Um, and so one of the arguments I make in the book, which I think is um, significant, is that we can't think of crops as inventions, um, certainly not discoveries. They're really collaborative technologies with really deep histories. Right. And for this reason, you call the seed a deep time technology. Now, this contrasts significantly with the normal temporalities that historians use to describe the past. Uh, in the 19th century, for instance, uh, the Gilded Age and Manifest Destiny uh, define the temporalities we use. How does a historian bring these different senses of time together to reinterpret the past? Yeah, I think it's a it's a really important question. I mean, when you think about the narratives that we have to organize 19th century history or American history, in some ways they're really blunt instruments, right? We have this 20th century idea of innovation that's been sort of grafted backwards onto the 19th and 18th centuries. Um, the idea of the the ingenious Yankee in Americans as improvers. Uh, we also have a really cherished myth of the American dream, um, the idea that hardworking immigrants have created American history. And I think that in some ways these narratives remain essential. But, you know, if you back up to 10,000 10, years, they don't make a whole lot of sense anymore. And even the kinds of evidence that we use to construct um, histories uh, seem to leave us with really different narratives of um, innovation. It makes a lot more sense to think about uh, collaboration uh, and stewardship than it does to think about um, breakthroughs and individual geniuses. There's no way in which a wheat seed would have survived um, for that many generations were it not for the combined labor of many people in many communities. And so in our sort of matrix of values that we use to organize um, our societies, uh, things like continuity and tradition and community start to look quite a bit more important. So I, I think those are some of the values at stake in the way that we describe these technologies in longer time frames. There are also questions for historians that are um, troubling. Um, what kinds of sources do we use to construct those narratives? When I'm looking in the 19th century, I can look at uh, commercial histories, business records. I can look at heritage histories. So the records that, for example, Mennonite communities leave behind, uh, I can look at state archives. So I spent a lot of time, you know, knee deep in archives of, of uh, the Patent Office and the USDA, for example. Um, and these all leave paper trails. Uh, paper trails are also good at assigning things like individual rights of ownership or things like state control. Um you know, what do you have when you look back 10,000 years? You may have a bit of charred seed that was found underground somewhere. You also, interestingly, have a 21st century seed, which uh, in ways that aren't fully understood bear the traces of every generation from which it's evolved. And so there are very interesting questions, I think, for historians going forward about how we collaborate with scientists, um, geneticists or bioarchaeologists, for example, um, to try and use organisms themselves um, as historical records. They don't speak for themselves, and I think there's such a priority on the science of genetics these days that people sometimes think these records are themselves the truth. But the truth is that we actually need uh, historians, humanists, social scientists to interpret those records and tell people what they mean. 
Yes, and so you're very eloquent in the book about the importance uh, for historians of handling uh, different temporalities at the same time. How do you see this as speaking particularly to the challenges we face today of the Anthropocene and of the apocalyptic culture of global warming that we face? Yeah, no, I think it's an essential question. And I guess a brief answer would be because we tend to naturalize temporalities, uh, even historians um, who are sort of paid to think about time for a living, uh, we tend to just assume that time is what organizes our histories and that if we can just plot things on a timeline, we're going to be able to understand more or less what happened. I mean, I know that's a crude summary, but I still think in some ways it's true. But the truth is that human beings construct time. Um, time is just a story or a narrative that we use to um, organize our experience of the world. So it matters quite a bit whether you think that the advent of uh, industrialization and the burning of fossil fuels was a pivotal event that set humanity on a crash course with the planet, um, or whether you think actually the agricultural practices um, based on the production of cash crops for global markets set the stage for that transition to fossil fuels. Um, there are ways in which these temporalities are intertwined uh, and layered that I think teasing out can help us um, can help us uh, cultivate cultivate more sophisticated political interventions and understandings of the threats to global uh, well-being and climate, for example. Something I talk about at the end of the book is. Um, you know, as you put it, um, the, the recourse to apocalypse. I do think that there are uh, major threats to to the planet and to our coexistence with it, probably more to our coexistence with it than to the planet itself, but certainly to our coexistence with a num number of other plants and uh, animals and other organisms. I think those are real threats, but I'm also um, very conscious of the ways in which um, the apocalypse is used um, to justify all kinds of political actions um, in the interest of uh, the world at large. Um, but it just, it seems to me sometimes that's a cheap shot, uh, that actually if we had better histories, if we had better accounts of how these threats came into being, um, then we would have better, better ways of addressing them. Um, so I don't think it's enough just to say the world is ending, we're all implicated. Um, and, you know, now, uh, governments or the Gates Foundation or whoever can make major interventions to try and, um, stop the train from crashing. I actually think we have to think much more precisely about the kinds of threats we're talking about and how we can intervene on a local level to avert them. I see your book, uh, in a significant way as being ultimately about humility and loss, the loss of biodiversity, and the loss of knowledge. Is that what we should be taking away from your work? Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't have said that, but I think you're right. Um, and I also think humility is a little bit of a hard line to toe these days. Um, it's, not, it's not a dominant part of our political culture um, or our technocratic culture. I'm thinking of Anna Singh's uh, book on mushrooms and this idea of an ethics of precarity. And I'm thinking of a review I read of that book uh, in which I felt that the reviewer 
really misunderstood um, her concept of precarity. I think the, the review um, indicated that before we can think about things like vulnerability, uh, we need to think about concepts like security. And some of my teaching and my other work, I'm really critical of the idea of food security as a concept that emerged in international geopolitics that has more to do with the prosperity of states than it actually has to do with the prosperity of local populations. But I think those outmoded um, national security-based approaches are just not very sophisticated ways of thinking about uh, ecosystems, of thinking about the ways that human beings coexist at a very local level and a very global level um, with other organisms. And so one of the points of the book was to try and sort of comb back through um, these layers of history to look at that, that coexistence. And, you know, you say loss, and I think that's right. I do spend a lot of time talking about um, the attenuation of biodiversity and the erosion of uh, other ways of knowing about plants and thinking about plants. Uh, botanic medicine is a case I talk about in several chapters of the book. But I wonder if loss is exactly the right word, uh, because something I'm somewhat more concerned with is the ways in which those knowledges um, or materials get claimed or reconfigured by other institutions. So, for example, the way that the USDA or other institutions of improvement can draw on the knowledge of local communities and make it into something else. And often that means that it's subjected to new kinds of values and imperatives. Um, in the history of agriculture, probably the most significant one is crop yields. It becomes sort of the dominant uh, imperative to to grow more food, to grow more grain. But that's not necessarily what, if you looked at a, a local community of farmers thousands of years ago, they wouldn't have thought that that was the priority. And so it's really interesting to look at how these different values and imperatives of new institutions guide both the, the history of the crops themselves, of plants themselves, and of human knowledge about them. And, and regarding uh, the question of humility, I was thinking particularly of your um, of those later chapters, and especially the one titled "The Allegory of the Cave in Kentucky," and this man John Uri Lloyd. Can you explain who he is and his interesting book that you describe? Uh, I'm so glad I'm so glad you asked about him because I found that when when um, people who are interested in the history of agriculture uh, read my book. They tend to get through the part one, which is about the patent office and the sort of predecessor organizations to the USDA. And they get through part two, which is um, about the migration of these Mennonite farmers to the prairie. And they're interested in that. And then they get to part three and they're like, what, what is this? <laughs> um, why is she spending two chapters talking about this obscure Ohio pharmacist, John Uri Lloyd, who was best known as a, as for his affiliation with a school of eclectic, the School of Eclectic Medicine, which was um, a school of botanic medicine in the U.S. in the, the 19th century. But he, he himself wasn't really an eclectic. He was a botanic uh, pharmacist and a compounding pharmacist. And so he's really interesting, actually, both for his ideas about plants and the way people use them, but also... Um, as a material record of what's going on in the ecosystems in the prairie. So I spend um, part of a chapter explaining uh, how he tried to procure echinacea, a supply of echinacea from the prairie for this new uh, medicine that he was developing uh, and how he really struggled to get enough of it because the prairie was being rapidly transformed into grain fields. And it's also, it's a, it's a very interesting labor history who the people that he contacts to try and acquire these supplies and how they know what the plant is um, and what the different varieties of it are. 
and so in some ways I think by, you know, not taking the bird's eye view and thinking about a big institution by the, like the USDA, but taking the worm's eye view and thinking about one compounding pharmacist corresponding with Teamsters sharecroppers, you can, uh, in collecting plants, um, you, you can really get a, a better sense of the ways in which the culture of agriculture and plant stewardship was changing in the later 19th century. As to his novel, he's just a fascinating figure. He, uh, he wrote copiously, and he wrote this uh, science fiction novel called Edidorpa, which is Aphrodite spelled backwards, uh, about a journey to the center of the earth through a cave in Kentucky. And um, in some ways, it's a very derivative novel. There is based on many other models of the period, Jules Verne, for example. But I think that there are some things that are quite special about it. He's very preoccupied with the idea of scientific knowledge and its promises, but also its limits. And and so I spent quite a bit of time thinking about that novel and the book and, and about John Uri Lloyd as a critic, both of um, the transformation of the prairie into a grain depot in the latter half of the 19th century and of the development and institutionalization of scientific knowledge in the United States. Can you say just a little bit more about how Lloyd constructed the limits of scientific knowledge? Yeah. No, it interests me too. I think I uh, I keep sort of cutting that bit short because everyone gets so impatient for the chapter, even though it's my favorite. Um, but he, I think this returns to your question about humility. He thinks that scientific knowledge, that science, that the practice of science is fundamentally about acknowledging how much you don't know. And he he respects scientific method as he understands it. But he also thinks that practices of objectivity and observation are hopelessly limited. And so what I see coming out of that novel again and again is this real uh, critique of hubris and this call for humility. And uh, yeah, it's written as science fiction. It's really kind of a, it's a really cool book. They eat giant psychedelic mushrooms and, um, you know, defy gravity. There's a lot of good stuff going on in there. But the fundamental point is that uh, we don't really know anything and how we behave as human beings when we acknowledge that plants are probably smarter than we are. What that means for us as investigators um, and observers and stewards of our environment. Elsewhere, uh, his writing is less, uh, when he's not writing fiction um, and when he's not so prone to abstraction, he puts it a lot more concretely. He he really lamented uh, the, the transformation of the wild grass prairie. Um, and he thought that the agricultural model that was developing in the United States was very short-sighted and was going to be environmentally extremely detrimental in the long run. And in that, he um, preceded a, um, many other critics, but he also wasn't alone in that. There were many critics of that transformation, and sometimes I think we can lose sight of that. Yeah. So are there aspects of your book that I have not uh, yet questioned you about that you want to make sure are present here in the interview? Hmm. Um, no. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I mean, I'm happy to, I'm happy to chat more, but yeah, I don't know. People always want to ask me about the seed collecting stuff and I'm always glad to talk about that, but I, I think, you know, it speaks for itself in the book and it's something I plan to write more about in the, the future. I, it wasn't, a, I hadn't planned to include, uh, those sections in the book. I had planned for it to be a much more traditional, uh, narrative history of the 19th century U.S., but I had also spent 
the last seven years traveling around with these botanists and um, plant people. And as I, you know, kind of labored to actually get this piece of writing done because I, you know, had spent too much time traveling and wasn't spending enough time writing, um, I found that it was really difficult for me to write the history that I would have written previously, that it didn't reflect my current thinking or my current experience. Uh, and so somewhat, you know, after the fact, as I was finishing the manuscript, I wedged to anecdotes from my travels um, into the history to try and frame it, to try and explain, you know, what I was thinking and where I was coming from. And to be frank, you know, the peer review process, I expected the reviewers to be like, well, you know, what are these things doing here? Just get these out. Uh, they don't belong in this book. And instead, all the reviewers and everyone else I gave it to said, no, you really need to expand these sections. Uh, this is what the book is about. Say more. And so that was how the sort of field notes that interweave uh, the historical narratives came into being. And so I try to use those to articulate some of the ways in which this, this, this 19th century history um, remains uh, essential to the 21st century in the ways that we think about uh, world food systems and, the, and world biodiversity and how it's, how it's organized, how it's um, managed, how it's preserved or not. So... One of the stories from these field note sections that I found most compelling and interesting uh, was concerning uh, local knowledge and a, and a man and his dog in a patch of red land somewhere in Armenia that you came across as you were searching for the turkey wheat seed. Can you explain a little bit about that encounter? Oh, yeah. Okay. So actually, the uh, correction, that's, uh, that's it's not really accurate that I was trying to collect turkey wheat in Armenia. I was on a quite separate collecting expedition that it was, it was targeting cereal crops and wild relatives of cereals uh, for a breeding program, but not, not a, that particular variety of wheat. But the travel took us to various areas um, of the steppe region in that area. And I think the, I think the narrative you're referring to is, I describe being in this sort of nondescript field at the foot of Mount Ararat uh, on the Armenian side of the Turkish border. And we, I think we had to get out of the car, actually, because some cows uh, blocked the road. And so we decided to take a little leg stretch. And we ran into the the guy who was uh, directing the cows out of the road, the, um, the herder. And, uh, you know, he was sort of interested in what we were doing around there. Uh, so we got to talking to him. He was a nice guy. And he said, oh, well, you know, if you're interested in plants, you, you might be interested in uh, these plants that, that my dog found. Uh, you know, um, botanists can be, uh, they, they love to learn from other people, but it also we weren't uh, really looking for the plants that his dog found. But nevertheless, we were curious. And so he took us to a field nearby and told us this story about how his dog came back from the field with his legs completely red. He thought at first that he was covered in blood, and he was covered in blood, but it wasn't the dog's blood. It was the blood of the worms that had been feeding on uh, the plants in the in the field. And the interesting thing about this uh, for the, the pastoralist, the herder, the guy we were talking to, is that the blood of the worms uh, was used as a dye stuff. And it's really similar to um, what's referred to often as Ararat cochineal dye. You can see it in um, medieval garments and illuminated manuscripts. Um, and this was a not not exactly Ararat cochineal, but a really similar variety. 
Um, and so he thought, you know, as botanists, we might be interested in collecting this plant to, to commodify it in some way to sell it. It wasn't what we were looking for, and, you know, we didn't collect it. But nevertheless, it was a, it was a pretty interesting history and pretty interesting that he had sort of gathered that information traveling in the field. I was sort of curious about how he would have that level of detail about it. And then digging into it a little bit more, it appears that there are sort of different nonprofits that are active in the area trying to um, preserve and uh, resurrect craft traditions with these dye stuffs. And so I, I think that it's, it's sort of a, a very roundabout uh, labyrinthine story, which is what a lot of the stories um, I find both collecting plants and in historical research are like. But I think if there's a lesson to be taken from it, it's not... It's not really a lesson about innovation. It's not even a, le a lesson about static uh, traditional knowledge of um, sort of the romanti romanticized pastoralist. It's really about the fact that knowledge travels. Uh, this, this guy knew what he knew because his dog was wandering around in the field, so his dog knew more than he did in some ways. But he also knew what he knew probably from talking to other scientists and people that he had met uh, as he was traveling around the fields and in the area with his cows. Um, so knowledge moves, and the, we have to think about that when we devise categories and institutions for assigning ownership to knowledge and property rights to knowledge. Um, it's not nearly as simple or as static as we like to think a lot of times. Well, thanks for describing that. Uh, are you still collecting uh, seeds? Do you still go out with these I do, although I, I, we were supposed to go to Poland this year, and in the end, I couldn't go. But I have high hopes for the Russian Far East next summer. Um, that's that's my that's my hope, is that we'll get there. Uh, the you know there are all kinds of other funding constraints and things like that. But I really value my collaborations with with botanists, and I always learn so much from from traveling in the field with them. So it's work I want to keep doing. I've also been uh, studying botany under the auspices of another uh, fellowship. And so in some ways, I feel like I'm better prepared even to do that field work now than I was when I began it. Although even if I had it to do over again, I think learning botany in the field is really the, the way to go. Textbooks are great, but uh, it's better just to learn from the plants. Yeah. And so what are you working on next as a historical project? Um, I'm writing a history of biodiversity preservation. Uh, perhaps that's a predictable next step, but it's very different from the last project. Um, it's much more international in orientation, and it's also simultaneously much more focused on the 20th and 21st centuries and more concerned with um, some deep historical problems that I allude to in the book. So I do have, for example, a chapter on the Fertile Crescent idea, which is the idea of the Fertile Crescent as a 20th century concept. But the, um, that area is a um, center of plant domestication, is, uh, has a much longer history. And so um, I want to talk about I want to talk about big problems in the preservation and stewardship of biodiversity, but I also want to talk about the political work that that category is made to do in the, the 20th and 21st centuries. It seems like a it seems like a good in and of itself, and so sometimes I think when we encounter those um, those big concepts that seem like innate goods, we uh, tend to lose our ability to be critical about the way they're being deployed. Um, and so, in the book, I want to do a lot of thinking about the ways in which different institutions and states have tried to use biodiversity to wage different kinds of political and economic claims. Wow. So that sounds uh, fascinating, and I look forward to reading it someday. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time today, um, and good luck with that project. <laughs>
Thank you. I appreciate it.